Hello, welcome back to Romaniacs, the very nearly award-winning Brexit podcast. <laughs> I'm Dorian Litsky, and it's a special low-fat austerity edition of the show this week, co-hosted by just me and Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian, how are you? Hello, everyone. Are you very sad that Big Ben will not be ringing out to mark Brexit? I am, as you can imagine, completely crestfallen uh, by this fact. But I am, you know... At least a little bit more inspired by the news in the sun today that uh, there's going to be Brexit coins. Well, there might be Brexit coins. The Treasury is open to the idea of a Brexit coin to make up for the loss of Big Ben's bangs when we leave. And how much will the Brexit pound coin be worth? (laughs) Do you mean now or in two weeks' time? (laughs) Presumably less than a pound. Joining me in today is our special guest, Hugo Rifkin, columnist, leader, writer and TV reviewer for The Times, which is a secretive newspaper that hides behind a paywall. (laughs) He also writes the My Week Diary parodies in The Times, regularly appears on Radio 4's The News Quiz, and spends inordinate amounts of his time fighting the good fight on social media. Hello, Hugo. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hello. Nice to be here. Have you been having any good Twitter fights recently? Yes. <laughs> yes, I've been fighting Nazis about immigration for a change. Yeah. Uh, so, good good open debate. Presumably they're, they're listening to your points, thinking about them, readjusting their position based on evidence. It's nice that you follow me, yeah. Uh, that, that's more or less exactly <laughs> what's, what's been happening. It's, it's, nice when you get, it's nice when you can get the kind of sort of... If you can manage to enrage both the kind of the right and the left with a single column, or sometimes even a single tweet, that's when, that's when life's going really well. Yeah. Are you just very thick-skinned, then? Oh, I'm glad you said skinned. Um, <laughs> you just very um, thick. You yeah, keep doing this. I may be both. Both of those things are true. Yes. Where would you put yourself on the Brexit scale? Are you a sort of uh, Mr. Whippy Brexit over there, and uh, shrine to Michelle Barnier in the back room over there? Oh dear, I don't know. I'm a I'm a sort of I'm a hardcore Remainer who doesn't know what to do. So I'm not. I'm kind of like very very upset about it all. But if you said fine, you have the power to cancel it right now, I'd be a bit panicky about that. <laughs> yeah well they, you're in good company then last week we were talking looking back on uh, a kind of year of Romaniacs and obviously you'll have seen commemorative plates in the mail on Sunday magazine <laughs> and uh, touching tributes throughout the broadcast and print media and we were saying how circular the Brexit story is and how the same things crop, keep cropping up and there were things we were saying a year ago going well I can't wait till this is sorted out and it hasn't been as a columnist who has to write a lot of things about what's going on. Do you find yourself in Brexit Groundhog Day where you're just like, eh, I've got to deal with this again? Yeah, it's sort of worse than that. I mean, it's because the same issues come around, but they get more complicated each time. And so if you if you stop concentrating for a week because you're writing about something else, like Facebook or something, uh, then you sort of, you just don't know. You don't know what kind of new issues have come up. Like I've been, I've been in meetings where, like I remember being in the meeting when the first time people started talking about customs union. And the first time someone said knowledgeably, like, you know, well, of course, a customs union wouldn't apply to services. And everyone goes, oh, yes. And now that sort of gets incorporated <laughs> in the kind of the sort of, the, the sort of ground zero of knowledge you've got to have. So it becomes it becomes increasingly sort of like standing on a very high tower of loose rocks that anything you say, you can just kind of fall <laughs> off. So, I mean, I, I actually write less about Brexit than I would like to and used to, uh, simply because the, the, the minutiae of it is is such that your opening paragraph can just... And just last 4,000 words, which is hard in a 900-word column. That's why I outsource all that to, to Ian. <laughs> the internet. Just no, in case. No, no word limits. I should be paid easy. for that function, yeah. by the way. Well, if there was a quiz, though, if I was – I really – I have a real fear that someone would just set me a quiz and just go with all of these kind of like – not particularly hard, but, you know, basic technical questions like, you know, distinguishing between the, 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 the actions of the customs union and the single market and – 
And I'm just worried that I would not get all the answers right. This can't, it's been like a year we've been sat in this basement and I've just <laughs> been <laughs> spieling shit about this. So I like, sometimes feel like you're not listening. But I just sit there kind of nodding. Or like a bot. Like one of those, like, like one of those, one of those sort of bots where you, you, it, just, it just feeds back the generic answer. A bit like Brendan O'Neill does. Yeah. Just, data. <laughs> yeah. just feeds back the generic answer <laughs> that everyone knows that you've momentarily forgotten. I could, I could blather about it, but if they gave me like a hard, hard question, because when Ian talks, it's just like Charlie Brown. It's not the first time you've done that specific impression. I try and I try, I try not, I'm just saying <laughs> that when I'm in here, I feel like I know it all. But then I go outside and if a stranger just said, can you please talk to me about point of origin checks? I would uh, I would let them down. Right. Which is a good job. No one ever recognizes or approaches me. So that's that's handy. So if we do leave the EU, uh, how do you think we should mark this historic moment? Crying and drinking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's like a really less... dark street party. Yeah, yeah. Kinda... Get the trestle tables out, but everybody's just yeah. weeping. We can establish a new sort of tradition where on the same day every year from now on we weep in gutters. You know, that would be, um, that would be great. No, I mean, uh, if we leave the EU, I don't know. It'll be, um, I think we can sort of celebrate it all by trying to get our money out of pounds. Or, you know, <laughs> buying Bitcoin might be a great celebration. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't Let's know. have a, a celebratory run on the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're celebrating with this tinned food I bought last night in a panic. We think we need to crowdsource this one. So listeners, we'd like you to tweet us your favourite idea of how to mark Brexit Day. And the best idea will win a Romaniacs t-shirt. Use the hashtag Brexit Day. Last week, we asked our Twitter followers what they'd buy with the £900 that, according to the Bank of England's calculations, they would have earned if not for Brexit. Lots of people suggested half the cost of Irish citizenship, but if there were no Brexit, you wouldn't need it, would you? Bad listeners. Several listeners wanted to buy tons of gammon. Holland Jones suggested travel, hotel and two good seats at the trial of David Davis. What for he hasn't specified. <laughs> he'll nail him on something. Simon Fathers said a unicorn detector. But the winner is Patrick N1 Artisan. <laughs> so metropolitan at least. <laughs> and then making his own sourdough, who suggested a wax image of Nigel Farage and lots of pins. That, that is a lot of pins or a very large Nigel. Well done, Patrick. You get a Romaniacs T-shirt and a place in the dock at the post-Brexit show trials. India, what would you, you spend your £900 anti-bonus on? Drugs and comics, probably. <laughs> Just all same, I ever same money old, on, same so. old. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Yeah. I was going to spend mine on on sort of relaxation. You know, they're very expensive meditation things or relaxation. Oh, like a retreat. Yeah, because I just mm. had a few days of being away and feeling peaceful, and I was like, "This is weird." I'd like you to could, do I this actually... more. I'm just generally, I'm just tense with politics all the time, so I pay for treatments. I can sort of see in your face that you have that holiday relaxation look that people have for approximately 30 minutes after they come back. <laughs> and then they like take a couple of calls at work and the normal ashen sort of despair returns. I just need to have a, like a Twitter filter that leaves out everything that's actually happening. happening. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just sort of like benign abstractions or utopian fantasies. Yeah, you can, you can do that. You just need to follow the right people, I think. All the wrong people, yeah. Yeah, you're not yeah. doing that very well, though, either, are you? No, no, I only, I only <laughs> seem to follow people on Twitter who make me cross. Yeah, it's like, I think I, I think I agree with them. I start following because I think I agree with them, but it turns out they make me cross, like everyone makes me cross. And I'm not very good at being cross. I'm not an instinctively cross person, so I, I get a kind of sort of peevish sort of cross. You have a sort of, I have to say from afar, you seem quite zen. 
Yeah, I'm quite sort of two-faced in that regard. It's, uh-huh. a, it's, a, it's, it's a polished, it's a polished sort of um, uh, two-facedness. That's yeah. a shame because that makes me feel like my own Zen is now further away. <laughs> there are no examples to emulate. Yeah. No, I kind of, I, I sort of, sort of in, internalise the rage, and it's, it's it's a bit like the um, it's a it's 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 absolutely a public school legacy. Is the kind of mm. don't show your cross, just <laughs> kill them. You know, that, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, just. Push it deep, deep push it down. down. Push it down and then stump on their throat later. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to the Brexit news after a couple of reminders. It's because we're understaffed. It appeared to be from me. <laughs> the, the clock is ticking down to stage time. The fruit and flowers are ready for our headline slot at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival on Sunday 3rd of June. Ian and fellow regular Naomi Smith, plus producer Andrew Harrison, will be appearing with special guest Martin Rosen, the Guardian's Hagarthian political cartoonist. And it's all taking place in Stoke Newington's lovely Art Deco Town Hall, a temple of fine municipal craftsmanship. There'll be panel conversation, questions from the audience, exclusive merchandise on sale, and one or two panellists hanging around for a drink afterwards. The last few tickets are available at stokenewingtonliteraryfestival.com at Sunday 3rd of June at 6pm. And don't forget, you can always support Romaniacs via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. If you pledge a few pounds every month to keep the show alive and kicking, you'll get stylish mugs, t-shirts and bags, plus early bird notifications on tickets to our future live shows. Go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast to find out more. Now back to me for the news. (laughs) (laughs) First up, the Irish abortion referendum. Does it prove the referendums are a good thing and not a bad thing, as we've been saying for the past year? Or is it more complicated than that? (laughs) Ireland voted to overturn its abortion ban. The Eighth Amendment by 66.4% to 33.6%. And if there had been that sort of margin for leave in the EU referendum, it's unlikely we'd be sitting here now. Progressives across Europe hailed the vote as a great step forward for women's rights in Ireland, with a warning to the DUP that the North is next. It was described as Ireland finally leaving the 1950s just as Britain sends itself back there. However, with the grim inevitability of a hangover, the result was dragged into the endless Brexit squabble. Wonder if any remainers disputing results of EU ref on grounds that referenda aren't sensible way to settle important complicated questions will dispute results of the Irish referendum on same grounds, tweeted underemployed eugenics enthusiast Toby Young. <laughs> and dial a hot take Brendan O'Neill decided in The Spectator the important thing was not that Irish women would have the same rights as other European citizens, it was the remainers should be embarrassed. In their flighty view, Brexit was the work of plebs brainwashed by a bus, while the repeal of the 8th was the work of an enlightened people. Brendan always uses plebs in a sarcastic way when he's sticking it to the chattering glasses because he's a tribune of the people. (laughs) And the worst thing, people talking about referenda when it's referendums, as any fool know. Because this is obviously an important issue for women, we've got three men (laughs) (laughs) to discuss it. Purely due to to half-term childcare and holiday issues, not literally designed (laughs) like that. Um... Well, now, obviously, you've got two incredible juggernaut intellects here pointing out the hypocrisy of Remainers. I thought you meant us. Sorry. No, not you. No. no. He definitely wasn't looking at us. No. Toby and Brendan. Yeah. How Mm -hmm. do you hear back against their logic bomb? Oh, my God. Look, uh, it's like this whole thing about, so you didn't like that referendum, you've got to like this referendum. It's like, I sort of think it would be a bad idea if we went to war because we lost Eurovision, but I'm sort of in favour of us going to war when the Nazis invade Poland. You know, it's like, why do I need to have a view on war altogether in all circumstances? Referendums are a good idea when you have a government that already has a political mandate to do something that wants to make sure it has the majority consent of the people. That's it. That's what they're for. 
you know, that's why the Scottish referendum was a good idea, and they found out they didn't have a, uh, they didn't have a, a mandate to do it. It's why the Brexit referendum was a bad idea, because it was something that the government wanted not to do and wanted to be endorsed in not doing it, and it just sort of went wrong. So, I mean, you know, it, r- clear, simple referendums like the Irish referendum, fine, great. You know, if you, if you, can, you, can, you can do a policy like that by uh, the ballot box in a normal election, or you can do it by a referendum. It's, it's like, it's uncomplicated. Yeah, it, I wouldn't even. I mean, I'm not even keen on it for any, for what we saw in Ireland because you don't really want to have the majority voting on minority rights in any scenario. Well, sure. The reason they have to do it obviously is because of the constitution. They, you know, they did it one way, then they they actually had about three votes, I think, a few years back of sort of mucking around with it another way, and it's a change to the constitution, so you have to do it this way. So it has to be that way. I mean, generally speaking, I would want as few of these things as possible. And I used to be very, very pro-referendum. I used to really be quite interested in that sort of the Swiss system, you know, the Canton mm-hmm. stuff, you vote on everything. I've become quite disillusioned with the idea of referendums. Something about the last couple of years has sort of turned me off the idea. Whatever. I can't imagine what it was. <laughs> yes. Um, but even here, I mean, I, I don't think it'd be a fantastic idea. But if you are going to do it, at least you do it a bit like how they did it, which is you start laying out exactly how it would go. You have a pretty clear idea of what legal changes would follow from the thing that you have done. You know, you, f- you follow a pretty simple process for a relatively simple moral question. That is not where we've ended up with Brexit. The two things aren't really comparable. Well, I saw somebody do, I can't remember who it was, Well, they did quite a useful little grid of referendums um, where they had sort of three categories. They were kind of like, you know, sort of advanced planning and making clear the options. And the second category was the government's ability to deliver, you know, how close to guaranteed that was. Mm. And then the third was how much the public cared. And they said in the case of Ireland, all three categories were high. Um, mm. And then in sort of, I think, uh, electoral reform, it was like the first two categories, fine. Third one, nobody really cared. Mm-hmm. Brexit obviously fairly low in all the categories, even in terms of obviously the public's how passionate the public was about Euroscepticism prior to the referendum wasn't that high, and so it's the idea of, I mean obviously I, it's just it's just tedious right wing fuckery. This sort of like ah oh, we've caught you on some hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean there, there are there are the reason why they're things. a populist tool is that they're by definition a populist tool. They're the tool of people who the the the, the killer fact in any political political argument is the support of fifty point one percent of the population. Yeah, you know that's it. You've got it. I mean, and that's literally what populism is. It's the thing that says that the, the slight majority has to ride roughshod over everything else. So of course populists like referendums. I mean, of course they do. It, it is it is that politics. Mm. <laughs> You know, there is this sort of um, attitude of you, you could never have a Brexit referendum that worked. And I think that there are scenarios in which you could, but you, you would have to have, I think, probably more than two options. Or you would need to say, we will have another. I'm not trying to do this as some great big sort of disingenuous, oh, but by the way, I think you need another referendum on this. But you would have to have something on the specifics once oh, you've established the principle. Well, of Australia did this with, with, with something, didn't they? Where they had two referendums, but they'd already planned to have they planned to have two referendums from the start. Oh, I didn't. Well, know. I mean, it, I mean, to be it's like a two stage thing. Here's a strange sentence to say, but to be fair to Boris Johnson, that is at some at one point what he was basically suggesting, wasn't it? He mm. he wanted people to consider the first referendum not to be not to be the deciding one. He wanted it to be the kind of like the let's explore this referendum, and was generally disagree. Am I, am I making that up? Was, was this some, one? Was this some weird dream? Was this remain Boris or leave Boris? When it was kind of middling Boris, wasn't it? Because Jacob Rees-Mogg said the same thing at one point when they were trying to get it, mm-hmm. sort of saying, well, look, maybe we will need two in order. Because they would have said anything at that stage yeah. just to secure yeah. the vote, basically. 
So there was an awful lot of that. Or you could have just said, look, there's four options on the paper. You know, you could say you could have the we leave single market and customs union. I mean, mm-hmm. at this point, nobody knew what the hell any of these things were. You know, or you could say single market, leave the customs union, blah, blah, blah. And maybe you could do it that way. The thing is, people act like that is crazy to have a ballot paper with that much detail. But it doesn't seem to me to be any more crazy than the shit that we see every day right now, you know, which is the result of not having that on a ballot paper. Although there was always that sense, wasn't there, in the political class of like, if you provide more than two options, people will always take a, a middle one. Fine. What's wrong with the middle one? The middle option's great. The, you know? This, <laughs> what's the word? What middle options are for. No, what's the word for? There's a, there's a special word for basically the, there was a tradition in the, nat- um, the National Security Council in the US would present a president with three options and they called it like the Goldilocks. Oh, right, yeah. So you would, you would, you know, one would be too mild and one would be, you know, one too cold, one too hot because they wanted the president to go for the one in the middle. <laughs> and the problem is that they kept, they started doing it with Trump and he always chose the hot option. <laughs> <laughs> Which they deliberately set up is to be so reckless and unappealing that nobody would choose it. Jeez. <laughs> but, yeah, no- normal people would normally go for the... I think if you had have done that, you would have, you would have a lot of people going, well, I don't want to entirely leave the EU, but also, I don't want to entirely be in it. Mm. Let's go for the... So they do the they soft go for Brexit. Soft Brexit. But, yeah. the, but that, might not be, that might not lead us to a great place because, it, I mean, we've all learned an awful lot over the last couple of years. And it's very easy now to sort of even convince ourselves that we have the same understanding of all the issues that we did at the time of the referendum. Probably, um, if there had been three options, the middle one would have been virtually Norway. And Norway's yeah, not, it would. And Norway's not, not an easy thing to deliver mm. and not necessarily an advantageous thing to deliver. I, mm. I would have considered myself immediately post-referendum to be extremely pro-Norway. And now I'm not really sure that would, that would work. I mean, there was, it's not as if there was very many people pushing for Norway ahead of the referendum. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, you had Remainers. Yeah. Then you had a tiny sliver of sort of liberal leave, sort of Peter North and Richard. I mean, people that, know, you know, very esoteric sort of figures. Mm. And even now, that remains a quite unpopular sort of view, really. It's, everyone is there by, it's just sort of pragmatism. It's just like it's, it's not as bad as the alternate version yeah. for most people. And that's how they find themselves in that space. But, I, but I still, I'm still tempted to believe the public will go that way. Just the same as in the Scottish independence referendum. If you'd put a third option to say more powers devolved to Scotland, one would presume that that would have been the option that would have gone there and the independence mm. vote would have been much lower, and et cetera. I mean, if we're playing sort of, you know, fantasy histories we'd like to have seen happen, what I'd, what I'd rather have happened <laughs> would be a Conservative Party that... It sounds odd. Is it what I'd rather have happened? What could have happened is that you had a, a political party that wanted Brexit and and campaign for Brexit as part of its election and then, after having been elected, went to the country to get it endorsed at a referendum. That's the yeah. kind of process mm-hmm. that I'd be basically OK with. As it was, instead, you had a, you had a, conservative, a conservative government that didn't want Brexit and and a and a debate that just failed to happen at the time of the referendum, which is why we've ended up in a in a in an unmanageable situation. Well, it would be easier if there was a pro... You know, if the two main parties, one was clearly pro-Brexit, one was clearly anti. Yeah. But... Moving on. <laughs> that is not the case. Since before the referendum, Labour MPs outside the Metropolitan Pleasure Dome have lived in terror of their Lever constituents. <laughs> we can't support Remain, they said, because our voters will punish us. Seven out of ten Labour seats voted to leave the EU. But it turns out they might be worrying about nothing. A new survey from Best for Britain, not the most unbiased source, but very rigorous with the data, shows that there was only a handful of seats where more Labour voters back leave than Remain, and that many of them would vote Labour in a general election, whatever its position on Brexit. Eloise Todd, chief executive, and a past guest on the show said, what this shows is there is an electoral dividend for Labour if they move position and oppose Brexit. Not only is it right for the country for Labour to do that, 
It's also good for labor. So that's all sorted then. Jeremy's on board. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, what do you think of this uh, study? Because I've always been very skeptical of the idea that you would just lose a whole swathe of constituencies based on this. Mm. one issue. Well, there was a bit of a test, of course, in the general election where, I mean, way back when, we don't remember it anymore, but the Conservatives for a long time acted like they could definitely bring a bunch of Labour voters on board by just being harder on Brexit in the North. And in fact, it turned out that was not the case. So this is a very good, these, these kind of, so these are very, re, this is really expensive polling. And I think Best of Britain are using their Soros money that then was doubled up by the public when there was all of the, the unspeakable nonsense in, in the Telegraph. Yeah. Um, in a pretty sensible way here. This is like, seems to be a good way to put the proposition towards Labour MPs. Um, they're finding a bunch of seats where sort of Labour Remain support is larger than the majority of the of the Labour MP who sat there. These are leave voting seats. Right. However, there is an assumption, I think, in the, in the research, which is ultimately that Labour Remain votes are very strong, very hard, and Labour leave votes are very <laughs> soft and are quite unaffected by the party's policy on Brexit. Now, that's not really been tested yet. That there is a Kellner, uh, Peter Kellner piece in Prospect last week, which actually looked at some of the sort of the Yugo polls over the last sort of period and, and found a similar thing, that Labour leave vote was quite soft. He was suggesting that maybe about a, mil- a million Labour leavers are now changing their position, along with uh, leavers under the age of 40, um, C2DE voters, uh, women under the age of 40. And he thought that, that that is, you know, that's credible, that that is a viable route out. I think that more data is is needed on that, frankly, before we could have any certainty about it. I mean, I went um, before the last election, I went, I had a week on the road, as we say, in uh, in the West Country, looking at kind of Tory Lib Dem marginals. And the demographic I met there, the electoral demographic I met there that amazed me the most were Lib Dems for Brexit. And there were a lot of them. There were a lot of Lib Dems for Brexit. And they hadn't always, a lot of them had voted Lib Dem. Then they'd voted UKIP for a bit. Then they'd vote for Brexit. Now they were voting Lib Dem again. It's the fuck off and vote, basically. That's exactly it. It's the fuck off vote. And we're still very bad at both conceiving and, frankly, politically admitting that Brexit wasn't about Brexit. You know, you can be, I mean, Brexit it was about a lot of things. And you can, and without being patronising about it, it was a dissatisfaction with the the way the country was being run and the people who were running it. It wasn't a sort of technical decision to break ourselves away from the European Union. And so because of that, the votes we're really talking about, I mean, it's 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 the UKIP vote, right? And there's this expectation that the UKIP vote will not go to Labour if Labour wanted to remain in the EU. It's just rubbish. The UKIP vote wasn't about leaving the EU. The UKIP vote was the, was the rage vote. It was the anti-everything vote. And one thing Corbyn's very good at is harnessing the anti-everything vote. Yeah, what I find disappointing, fun. I suppose, is the fact that more of those fuck-off voters have not changed tax since then. You can fuck, understand... Fuck's like, back on again. Like, yeah, like you're in a... You know, you know, like sometimes you're in a temper and you kind of break something. And, you know, and because that's just... I don't have rage issues. It's just happened. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But, you know, you break something and you're being stupid and you kind of, or you, like, you know, you, you punch a wall and go, oh, my hand hurts. But then you would just, if someone said, would you do that again? You would go, no, that was kind of rage. The consequences were not very good. So I understand why a lot of people were just like, screw Cameron, screw the establishment, screw the status quo. But now people are going, actually, this will, this will hurt you quite badly for them that part of the sort of human brain that's just like, I don't care. But they haven't got hurt yet is the trouble. And in fact, you could say almost the opposite of there was a sense that the establishment was paying attention to voices who hadn't really been heard for quite a long time. Mm. So the pain hasn't come, but some of the political rewards have come. Or rather, as Peter was saying last week, the pain has come, but it's only in comparison to where you would be right now rather than where yes. you were at yeah. that point. 
So on that basis, the hand just simply isn't hurting, really. And we talk about this uh, Labour situation every every week, I think. Um, <laughs> but Keir Starmer came out and could sort of confirm that, you know, Labour will vote against the deal if it doesn't pass the, the six tests and... I thought this was really unremarkable. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's been saying this throughout, but this, is, this comes from a... We've mentioned this many times. It comes from this, this idea that there is a consistent Labour position, and there isn't. Just like the Cabinet, just like the Tory Parliamentary Party, just like Parliament as a whole, people are looking for terms that are broad enough and malleable enough that they can just say it and everyone puts their chips in, assuming that it refers to them. The Labour position has is, is been made broad enough that Starmer, who's ultimately a soft Brexiter, or he's probably he's a Remainer, frankly, but, you know, who will want to keep us in something that is the single market to all intents and purposes, is able to say, look, it's about this. And, you know, Barry Gardner and John McDonnell and Seamus Mill and everyone else can feel the same way. So on that basis, I think it's unsurprising that he is still holding up his end part of mm. that and others on different sides of the party are holding up a completely different front. Hugo, do you think that there's more appetite for, you know, the kind of the Lexit position? It seems to be sort of, I sense it kind of growing a bit. And I don't know whether it's just because Corbynite, you know, loyalists just kind of, you know, want to justify their support for mm-hmm. Corbyn's position. But this seems to be, I see quite a lot of people doing this kind of, well, we can't have the socialism we want without, um, you know, while we're yeah. under EU rules. Now, I think you could have the socialism that most people in Britain, including many Labour voters, wanted. But you couldn't have, partic- you know, this particularly kind of like clunking fist, old school nationalisation and certain other things. And it just seems to be... Uh, there seems to be a real... It's not all about this electoral triangulation. There seems to be some kind of real uh, true believers there. Well, how, how would you well, I see th- the balance? <clears throat> I think um, I think there's generally a thing on the, uh, on the left of the Labour Party that sort of below the surface, they're quite hungry for some red meat, right? Because I think Corbyn has... Uh, it's hard to say whether it's through calculation or through kind of sort of diffidence, but has them... Has, um, he has modified himself really an awful lot since he since he took the leadership. He's he has he has drifted and brought his supporters towards the centre quite a lot. He doesn't. He's not the, he's not a radical figure anymore. And I say that sort of as praise, really. Mm. Um, and there are people who want they want a hard policy. They want to talk about this is this would be revolutionary. And Lexa is Lexa is a is a revolutionary view of what a Corbyn, Corbyn government could do to Britain. So it's a way of reassuring themselves that although. Corbyn might might talk more softly when he speaks to the electorate now. Actually, what they're going to do is change Britain in a way that the status quo makes impossible. I think so. I think it's a it's a sort of it's a reassuring it's a reassuring kind of technique. I think it's I mean it's obviously rubbish, but um, <laughs> I just wanted to I think that's, that I think that's why it's there. Yeah. Finally, Italy is in chaos after the latest elections. The leaders of Italy's two populist parties, Five Star and the Far Right League, forced a coalition from very different policy platforms. But they dropped their attempt to form a government. This is all happening on Wednesday morning, by the way. It would have changed uh, so, about seven times yeah. before Friday. So it would country. another eight governments by then, yeah. <laughs> anyway, at one point in the dim and distant past, President Sergio Mattarella rejected their choice of finance minister, Paolo Savona, who is an 81-year-old Eurosceptic economist who thinks Italy's entry into the Eurozone was a mistake. So the president installed Carlo Cottarelli, uh, unelected former IMF official known as Mr Scissors, why, Mr. Scissors? <laughs> because of his support for austerity. It'd be like a Russell Brand children's character, wouldn't it? Oh, it's naughty, Mr. Scissors. Because of his support for austerity, which is no laughing matter. Uh, as his interim prime minister, this was presented as a Brussels coup d'etat by the sort of people who are always warning about creeping Eurofascism 
as opposed to the fun kind of fascism, like Nigel <laughs> Farage. <laughs> but it has set the markets into a panic with the prospect that Italy might do a Greece uh, or worse, fall out of the EU altogether. And if that happens, do we call it it exit or Ital exit, which is what happened when Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh left Bob Marley in 1974. <laughs> Ian, um, we don't have Peter to adjudicate on the... Uh, he, he, he liked... That was one of the things we'll miss, is that he did like putting exit on the end of... He did, yeah, He really yeah, did. Yeah, no, was, he didn't even flinch, did he? <laughs> he was just like, he was like, bring it on. There's literally nothing I will not stick exit on the end of. Um, so, like I said, this is all in flux. It will definitely have changed by, by Friday. Rather than talking about uh, the kind of details of the machinations here, what sort of message does this send about you know, about the country's relationship to the EU and where Italy uh, might be headed. I mean, I, I do feel he's sort of played into their populist hands. I'm not sure he could have done anything else, and I think his decision is completely legitimate on its own terms. In that you've got a guy here who has written articles before about how you can secretly leave the euro. Now, in the election, there was no discussion of leaving the euro, for really good reasons. I mean, part of which is, I mean, you know, Italian debt is, is mostly held in-country. So when you start talking about really catastrophic economic events, that would fuck people in country. It's not just outside. It's not like the Troika or something that would be taking a haircut. It's, it's your own middle classes that would be taking a haircut. And I can't see that there would ever be public support for that. And my guess is, and of course I'm not very well plugged into Italian politics, but my guess is that he felt that that offered protection to his rear to in order to do this move. He can constitutionally do it as much as he likes. But of course what it allows the League to do, and the League are proper fascist thugs that's what these people are five star are a sort of clown absence they're like a sort of post politics you know online democracy outfit with sort of strands of leftism in there somewhere and strands of rightism uh, yeah to like immigrants and unions it's not well, they, they used not... to be quite pro-immigrant and then they sort of have shifted as it became less useful to them to to do really but i mean they're, they're, but they have a history of, of, of you know slagging off unions and stuff it's not their yeah. leftism is a very strange kind of yeah, I don't think they're left. I don't think they're left or right or anything. I mean, they're literally they're formed by a clown, Pepe Grillo, and and you know that is what they are. They're a clown car of a political party, and I think by the end of it, he has offered them a chance, an opportunity to be able to say, you know, this is them stopping us from doing what we want. This is the great conspiracy. That argument is now easier for them to make, and you know, w with a little bit of reason. Well, what happened with Greece was one of the biggest um, arguments against the EU, particularly on the left, mm. wasn't it? Because I think they, they had been treated very badly by the Troika, you know, and I went over there at the time. And I mean, obviously, the economy had just been a, was a disaster and had been hideously mismanaged. But the way that it was handled, this sort of brutal austerity, which led to uh, the rise of Golden Dawn and, and horrendous kind of racism there, that was extraordinarily badly handled. And I always felt that that was one of the that was one of the only arguments during the referendum campaign that I couldn't rebut. It was just like, no, yeah. they, they really yeah. they really screwed well, that country up. Well, I mean, Italy, like, like Greece before it, although Italy before Greece, because Italy, there was Italy, then there was Greece, then Italy again. Um, <clears throat> it's basically, it's the best argument you get for the exact status within the EU that Britain used to have and is yes. now getting rid of. You know, because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean like, like, you know, Grexit and Italy exit or whatever are, um, you know, because of the EU, the, the Euro, they're, they're infinitely more complex. Mm. And because of the the euro, they are um, they are structures and situations where uh, greater political union is is inevitable. You know, I'm a sort of strong believer that you you, you can't have economic union 
to that degree without without fiscal union. You can't have fiscal union without political union. You know, you can't have you, the euro is unsustainable for as long as German pa- German taxpayers are not prepared to pay mm-hmm. Greek and Italian pensions. And that is a and that itself is a is a democratically tricky situation at mm. the very least because um because you end up with a with a, a tyranny of the majority where the majority is separated from everybody else by national difference. So it's it's a, it's an absolute nightmare. I don't know how you un- untangle it. The only really feasible way to untangle it is to have a kind of sort of status within the EU to start with where you're not part of the euro and you have freedom to do all these things for yourself and we had it and we're pissing it away. So I mean, you know, I, it sort of it works both ways. There is a certain amount of nonsense spoken about how the euro sort of disciplinary and punishment mechanisms on let's say sort of having a budgetary deficit over 3% which would would probably be quite a good idea frankly for Italy at the moment. You know, when you're in the doldrums, it's not a bad idea. Classic Keynesianism, you run mm-hmm. up a bit of a budget deficit and the reason that that's not happening is because they're strapped to countries like the Netherlands and like mm-hmm. Germany who who are in, I think, quite a hypocritical way, sort of saying, no, well, you've got to be much more conservative than that. It's like, well, those parties in Germany inherited most of that surplus. You know, yeah. It's not like they built it themselves. So for them to be all high, high-minded about it. However, that 3% rule, for instance, I mean, the commission can, you know, they can fine you, but they never do. It's not really the rule that operates. What matters is the markets take fright. Now, the commission has promoted that message by sticking to this 3%. But ultimately, if you do it, your bond yields will rise. I mean, the ECB will stop buying your bonds if the rating agencies say mm-hmm. they're not up to much. Your bond yields will rise and you'll get yourself into a, a spiral that is properly cataclysmic. And that is the thing that holds it together. It is not about having bureaucrats with a whip hand over you or anything like that. It's mm. the market. And yet, of course, so when you get the people that supported austerity, you know, in 2010, who said, well, it's got to be done or else we'll lose our credit rating. But you just think, like, well, how can you possibly consistently make this argument? Because it's exactly the same whip, the market whip, that forces you to take that political problem in this scenario and the one that we had back then. When uh, Macron uh, beat Le Pen in France, there was a kind of bit of a sigh of relief. The sort of populist wave had sort of paused for a bit. Um, this just seems like a, a mess, I'm trying to think of an elaborate way to say mess, like a cool, funny way, but no, just, just a mess. Um, does that mean just the kind of the, the wave is rolling on and we're just going to see more? I've been reading a lot of very kind of like bleak essays in New Yorker and New Statesman, mm. you know, and a lot of books like The Death of Democracy, How Democracy <laughs> Dies, Bye Bye Liberals. Um, well, pop- populism isn't, isn't good at answers. It's good at it's good at pointing out the problem and 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 uh, and even at um, at energising people concerned about the problem. But you reach a point where it's like, yeah, yeah, now what? What you gonna what you gonna do, Italy? What you gonna do? You know, and um, now what you gonna do is sort of nothing is sort of flounder around and have no government. But but the EU needs to offer some answers as well. Hmm. You know, I mean, this is the, it, it. It can't just like on, on let's say on the refugee issue. Italy's complaints are not unfair. Sure. You know, it is basically just being given wave and wave. It costs an awful lot of money just in terms of health, in terms of education, in terms of housing. And they are basically being given no help at all. So if you keep on doing that day after day, year after year, eventually a bunch of thug scum like the league are going to come in and go, well, we'll fucking kill them all. You know, because that's where that goes if you don't show that you have a pragmatic solution to but, these but problems. That- that's what the EU should be doing is not punishing, is not letting people kind of take blows just from their geographical position because that's where the migrants land in the Mediterranean. Yes, exactly. It's just like, well, if you're thinking of this as a common project, that's something that you should have been addressing. And I do think that's one of the that – has, that has been a kind of major failure which, which allows fascists and clowns 
uh, to rise. Mm. Well, Sorry, it, it, it's it's an inevitable. I mean, it's an inevitable argument for for greater political union within that zone. Mm. You know, if you have if you have a, if you have a common currency and you have open borders, which they do around your, around Europe, and like proper properly open borders, Schengen open borders, not our theoretical open borders, <laughs> then you need to have some form of political jeopardy for people sitting in Berlin for stuff that is happening in the south of Italy. Mm. You need to, otherwise, they're not going to make decisions that affect that in any beneficial way for that region. And so it's, it, it literally is a situation of power without responsibility. It's just not sustainable. I feel quite depressed over the last few weeks of watching, especially in Britain, the two groups' response to stuff. I mean, on the one hand, you, the, the Eurosceptic Brexit thing is almost salivating at the sort of Italian collapse. Mm, and you just yeah. sort of think, like, just it's just disgraceful, fuck it, you know, not, not acceptable behaviour. But then on the Remain side, I have seen this sort of complete acceptance of the EU PR of we're completely united, everything's absolutely fine, mm. you know, you sort of think, I like, know, they are not dealing with the problems that are washing up on their shores, yeah. you know, yeah. whether it's through refugees or whether it is through the, the obvious internal contradictions of the Eurozone project that needs to go one way or another. Yeah. But ultimately, they're not dealing. They're just trying to trundle on, muddling through in a sort of weirdly British way. And that is the greatest gift the populace could have and that the enemies of the EU could have. And that's another right of that thing that, that you often say, like, Brexit is not the only thing that the rest of the EU is concerned about. Yeah. It's, not, mm. it's not their top priority. They've got other stuff that needs fixing and no obvious solutions. But also, just to be a to be a remainer to be a remainer in Britain to be a remainer in Britain is not to be an EU enthusiast. I think the, the EU is a terrible organisation. Steady on now. Uh, <laughs> Steady on. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful idea for the most part. Shitly managed. What it is, but th- that that is almost irrelevant to the question of whether or it's a good idea or a catastrophically bad idea for Britain to leave it. And I would say it's absolutely the latter. <laughs> So with us in our unbearably hot studio this week, and we can't get a silent Dyson fan because Dyson is Brexit. So if a Remainer would like to invent an efficient, affordable silent fan, please do. Uh, our special guest is Hugo Rifkin, Times columnist, radio panellist and the secretive pen who writes the My Week spoof diaries in The Times. Hello again, Hugo. Hello. Now, The Times is an unusual paper. Thank you. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> and then it's got a kind of uh, famously Brexity proprietor, but a largely kind of Remainer editorial slant. We had Matthew Paris on the show. Mm-hmm. We like many of the, the columnists on The Times. Um, do people still assume uh, that Murdoch tells you all what to write? Is that like, because I remember seeing that a lot on Twitter that people be shouting at, sort of Catlin Moran and goes, well, of course. I mean, your paymaster. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. I mean, I, I wouldn't say most people. Most. I mean, most people aren't very interested in who owns newspapers, mm-hmm. and any more than they're you know, sadly sometimes interested in newspapers altogether. Um, I mean, you know, the the the. The complication with the Times is the Times has a very different editorial policy from the Sunday Times, and, uh, and many people assume they're the same newspaper, which is particularly confusing over Brexit because the Sunday Times was, of course, pro-Brexit, mm. and the Times was was very much anti-Brexit. Uh, I mean, to the extent we, that that um, that Brussels documentary that was on last week, they had the the, the UKIP, mm. the UKIP, um, whichever UKIP nutter it was, I can't remember, talking about the papers he he completely hated and considered to be enemies, and the Times was absolutely top of the list. So the Times is quite a sort of firmly firmly remain newspaper um and um and i i think i'd be aware if that was being dictated from somewhere in america uh not, <laughs> not aware of it being so oh um because presumably a lot of the same people will buy the times and the sunday times i think the mail, yeah. the mail on sunday have this problem as well that, yeah. that they, they get you know mail on sunday gets blamed for a lot of mail stories when they're actually yeah. quite different um so where did where did, in your experience and your feedback and obviously you have a paywall so it's kind of like 
filters out. Uh, You'd think. Does it not? <laughs> I always assume. Well, you don't get kind of, presumably a lot of the, um, you know, the, the kind of Russian bots and angry drive-by trolls can't be bothered to subscribe, so... No, I mean, we... Um, I mean, no, compared to, say, you know, any other newspaper with, with comments, no, we're, we're very free of that sort of thing. Although you do get a, you do get a few. And what do they... What, what, does it feel like the readership is, 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 is mainly pro-Remain, or do you get a lot of cross-leavers? Well, it's quite hard to tell, because, as ever, the, the angry people are more vocal. Um, and so... Um, you do. I mean, you do get quite a lot of. You do get quite a lot of uh, cross remainers. You do get quite a lot of very vocal leavers. Um, I'm pretty sure our, read- our readership, if not our our comments, would be. Uh, and I'm sure this. I'm sure this has been. This has been sort of polled and, and, and focus group. But I'm pretty sure our readership would be considerably predominantly remain uh, because we appeal to a you know a, a business professional community who you know who are. Who are pretty sort of invested emotionally and often financially in the European Union. Do you find that there are more cross-Remainers than there used to be? I've noticed since the FBP thing yeah. came up that it definitely seems to be... Not everybody... I mean, people use that hashtag for, for, for lots of reasons. Obviously, many of our listeners do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've certainly noticed that there's a kind of like an anger and militancy among Remainers that I don't remember there being a, a year or Two yes, absolutely. I mean, there are there are newly impassioned people, and it's good and bad. You know, it's good because mm. it's good to have the passion there. It's bad because you think, hang on, we have we have we have nutters. Who knew we had nutters? And um, <laughs> and I mean, in many ways, the Brexit vote was massively revealing of all these people who've been sort of playing at being sane humans for their entire careers, who just turned out to be frothingly mad about something. And um, and yeah, I, I sort of quite agree. Only really over the last six months, mm. you start to see there's sort of there's the odd frothing madman on 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 the side of the angels too, which is our side. Just just to make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been writing a lot about data manipulation, and fake news for the Times, doing doing proper reporting. Why? Thank um, you. One piece about Cambridge Analytica was headlined: "Can data really swing an election?" And you said if there's ever a second referendum, people's vote, then Remain should leave out facts, telling the truth, and most of the electorate. Instead, target the ones who nearly agree with you and then go all out to stir them up. Um, now, obviously, because Remain people are very, very nice, um, and their message is not about kind of, you know, rage and, and upheaval, is there a way to use those sorts of dirty data tricks in a, in a nice way. Well, to be clear, I wasn't. Uh, this was a rhetorical point. <laughs> yes, I wasn't yes, saying, yes. I wasn't saying this should actually happen. This was an example designed to show how easy it is for mm. uh, for populists to use targeted mm. targeted data to win to win uh, elections, particularly referendums. And um and the point I made was that you could just on the numbers alone, you could ignore you could basically ignore everyone in the country except for people who voted Leave in the Remain strongholds of London and Scotland. And if you could get enough of them, you could you could turn it over while completely ignoring all the people who, you know, in the in the north and elsewhere, who's for whom the you know the, whose votes in the referendum was supposed to be in this sort of massive wake up call. I'm realizing that wasn't quite anything to do with the question you asked, but I can't remember what the well, question you, was. No, no, I mean it, it, it kind of it, it was halfway there. No, but isn't there? A, is there? <laughs> There's a lucky chance. No, but when you're studying what you know, the way that kind of populists yeah. sort of you know game the system and break norms and do this yep. or that. Um, how much can sort of Remainers stroke liberals um, learn from that, you know, in a kind of in a morally neutral way? Yeah. You know, without getting kind of tainted by this, 
by the sort of stuff that made this story so big. Well, I mean, it depends how far in the in the gutter we're prepared to get. And some people would say we ought to get we ought to get plenty in the gutter, um, I mean, because you're. It's like when you talk about date when you talk about data targeting an election, right? The elections and, and and politics generally. There are basically there are basically three questions that are really important, particularly as it as it relates to to Brexit and the first, and I don't remember what any of them are. Um, no, the, basically, the, the, you made the, the mistake the of first, saying the number, didn't you? The first, as soon as you say the, the number, you're like, "Fuck, I've lost it." The first question is, "Does this stuff matter?" Yes, absolutely, it yeah. matters. The next question is, "Does this explain why Britain voted Brexit?" And the answer to that question is a sort of very hesitant maybe. And then the third question is, does this mean we should ignore the Brexit vote? And the answer to that is absolute, absolutely not. Mm. Um, right? Okay, so the middle bit of this does, this, does this explain why Britain voted Brexit? What it basically does is you can look at targeted data and you can pretty easily create a very plausible hypothesis that what Vote Leave and the EU did, and particularly Vote Leave did, is what took them up from a 48-ish percentage vote to an over 50% vote, just by focusing on, as they say quite openly they did, focusing on males, was it males between the age of 35 and 50 who live outside London? Gammons. That's that's (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) um, But, I mean, that is... is, is, It's like like a room with five middle-aged men in it. But, um, (laughs) but yes. um, uh, But that is what they did. That is what they they focused on. Now, that is much easier to do. As I said before, that is much easier to do if you're politics generally are populist if you're saying if i can win the numerical argument i have thus won the moral argument remainers generally don't believe that because they believe in a more consensual sort of politics so it's very hard to see how you can use the same tricks Mm. in order to do the same thing what you'd have to do you'd have to character assassinate you'd have to avoid scrutiny uh because this is what a lot of these techniques are designed to do um and you'd have to you'd have to go with expedient lies and not just Frightening lies, but like optimistic, like unicorn lies as well. So I, I, I would find it hard to support a Remain campaign that did that. Although I would. <laughs> <laughs> you made the effort. Yeah. Do you think that Cambridge Analytica, which was a huge story in sort of media circles mm. and in kind of Remain circles, um, but I don't know how much, you know, the average voter, average newspaper reader sort of knows about this. Do you think it's kind of made any difference to the kind of efficacy of this stuff in future? Is it that people are going to be more suspicious? Or do you think most people just don't know or, or haven't noticed and they're not going to recoil from a kind of targeted Facebook ad and go, oh, hang on, I know what they're up to now? No, I mean, it wouldn't make a difference to, to people and how they perceive how they perceive stuff because we don't, because none of us, look, it's, like with, it's like with con men and magicians, none of us, none of us believe we can be the mark. Right, none of us. You, we never recognise the things that have changed our minds. Mm. Um, where, but where it all this, the, the the scale of this story has made a big impact is it will eventually change the law, and it has already changed the things that social media companies in particular are prepared to do. You look at what happened in Ireland. You know, Facebook uh, blocked all ads from outside the country. Google didn't allow any ads to do with to do with the Irish referendum at all. Some sort of really massive, unremarked upon decision. They said no, no political advertising on YouTube. Massive thing. Mm. Now that kind of thing has um, has big impact in terms of in terms of campaigning and what can be done. If there been if there been zero, if there been zero sort of YouTube ads allowed during the EU referendum, it would have been a very it would have been a very a very different different feel. Do you think that's the new normal now? If, if, if you think that there, if there was another Brexit referendum, yeah. do you think that, that the same decision would be taken? I I can well see Google wanting to stay out of it. It's very easy for them to stay out of it. I think there's actually a decent argument that, as with broadcasters, uh, 
uh, YouTube should be obliged to show political ads in a some sort of regulated mm. way. I don't mm. think they should be allowed to remove themselves from the political process. Um, I think with uh, with Facebook, yes, Facebook is uh, Facebook has made a lot of very important, albeit quite boring steps towards making sure you can see where the money comes from, you can see what you're being targeted with, you can see why you're being targeted with it, um, and that there is much more public scrutiny of advertising on Facebook. I don't know what that would look like in another referendum, but I mean, a lot of the things that were done, it seems quite routinely by sending different messages to different groups and that kind of stuff would already be a lot harder. And you reported on the Commons Committee um, hauling various... Uh, social media executives mm. speak, and they had the sort of arrogance of people who think they're more, and and, and rightly so, actually. I mean, they are more powerful, Absolutely, actually, than yeah. British MPs. But you know, I have a, I have a friend who was talking to someone at Facebook recently, and 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 I said, were they chastened, feeling chastened? He said, yeah, they they you know they really were. Yeah. This was this was a subject that came up, and they were trying to you know make mm-hmm. amends. Um, do you feel that their behaviour? There has some sort of, you know, that some sort of tipping point is being reached where they realise that they have to do something, be seen to be doing something that you can't. They can't back away in the way that, say, Zuckerberg did after, after I think Trump's election. Yeah, where he was just like, oh, it's absurd to say that we had any influence. Adverts on Facebook had any influence on voters. Meanwhile, saying to advertisers, oh yeah, no, adverts on Facebook are super effective. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and that they've, he's moved a long way from that position. What was your from from seeing the sort of close up? Do you feel that they, they that they know that there is pressure on them to change? Oh yes, I mean I think they got badly stung over the U.S. election. I don't think they knew quite what had been going on on their platforms, and I and I I think it's perfectly possible that some of those kind of early denials from Zuckerberg and, and similar work were, were actually sincere. They just didn't know, and then they figured out, and then they kept quiet about it for a lot longer than they should have done. I mean the the main my main sort of takeaway from seeing the British um the the DCMS committee is it it's a it's a really, really good advert for our sort of parliamentary democracy. It's like it's not um, it's not brilliant. It's not like if you put them in front of you know sort of ten journalists from Wired, you know, who do who, who <laughs> rip them apart. But when you compare it with, I mean, the the insane and absurd Senate hearings where Zuckerberg went before them, and these guys are like, so, so how how can you give it away for free? And he's like, well, we sell adverts, you know. And he's like, oh, very interesting, you know. I mean, that's, <laughs> fuck off, uh, you know. Um, and um, but also that even even Congress, which tried harder, you have this much greater entanglement between um, between business and politics in the in 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 the United States, where you have every congressman, every senator has one eye over where the next campaign check's coming from, really. And you have our you have our kind of our MPs in their kind of sort of like stained dirty suits who've come over on a budget flight uh, who have they're just really they're, I mean by virtue of the lack of glamour in our politics they're really they're not beholden to anybody and so they can grandstand against 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 the, the powerful Facebook exec and the YouTube exec and it and it and it works quite well and is there anything that you think has been done or can be done regarding the kind of um fake news in its original I mean it's a weird phrase now isn't it because yeah. it's been so hijacked by Donald Trump mm-hmm. and I need his Marvel Stan Lee <laughs> um, to basically just attack any story that they don't like but fake news in in its sort of original sense i.e. news that is yeah designed to be fake mm-hmm. but credible um, is that subsided at all I see fewer people uh, you know tweeting say you know, really, really sort of unreliable websites. I see people getting better, uh, you know, identifying that, you know, international global 
worldhealthnews.com turns out to be an anti-Semitic hellhole, but with herbal extracts. Um, so do you, do you feel that people are getting any, any smarter or that there's just this sort of that this stuff gets any less traction or well, it's, is, it's is it continuing? Be- it's better and worse. I mean, the, the thing to remember about the, the first fake news boom that really happened during, um, during Trump's election, you've got to remember that, was a, that wasn't even really politically motivated. That was profit motivated. This was people chasing clicks. You know, this was people who who knew that if they wrote some article about uh, there was the one that, one of the ones that spread the most was about Joe Biden threatening to barricade himself in the Oval Office. You know, which was it was and it's bizarre when you track back. Is that how an onion happened. story? No, this was a story from a Canadian satirical website that was copied by like cut and pasted, but then had the jokes taken out by spammers in Macedonia and put out on sort of vaguely convincing looking U.S. sites. And it went massively viral, millions of times viral, uh, by people sharing it sincerely, making the people who were running these sites a lot of money on adverts. And so the whole thing, yes, it had this massive kind of pro-Trump effect. That wasn't what it was for. Hmm. Uh, Now, all that kind of thing, Facebook has relatively effectively shut down simply by changing the algorithms of how stuff gets pushed to you. But what's come along in its place is... um, is the politically motivated, not quite fake, but nearly news? You know, the the Canary, the Breitbart. The I mean, that that's just in, that's just in Britain. In, in the in the states, you've got a million of these sites. More more of them on the right, far more of them on the right, mm. um, and they are much more active than they used to be. And they're not quite fake enough to call them fake, but they're certainly not doing our political kind of dialogue any favors. So that side of things, I would say, is probably getting worse. Yeah, but just that kind of out- outrageous. It's almost an onion story. Yeah, side is dwindling yeah the absolute i mean the, the absolute lies i would say are dwindling yes so your dad malcolm rifkind was foreign secretary at the end of the major government when the eurosceptic bastards were <laughs> which now now looking back not so not as bastardy as <laughs> as they seen at yeah. the time what are your um memories of that time like do you remember this being a, a big old thing yeah. yes sort of i mean i kind of i wasn't very politically informed at the time i would have been like when he was Foreign Secretary, I'd have been about, I don't know, 20-ish, I suppose. And I came to being politically informed relatively late in life. I'd say I was about the age of 37 or so. <laughs> so um, so I wasn't that aware. Um, you finally stopped raving and just uh, thought, I need a new hobby. We, <laughs> we have a... We have a. We used to have in our in our toilet, there's, he had, he had a, a cartoon, which I think was Peter Brooks in The Times, and it was of uh, Churchill's speech. It was a cartoon of him and Churchill. And Churchill, it said, 1946, and Churchill's giving the V for victory sign. And then it's my dad in 1996, and he just given some speech in Europe. I don't even know which one it was, and he's giving the V, the V swearing sign the other way around. And that's probably not going to work audibly, <laughs> if I'm, but I'm miming it right now. He goes twisting um, his fingers. So around. I mean, he, so he he was a he was a kind of um, he was a Eurosceptic Tory in a way that a lot of the Tories then were Eurosceptic, but Euroscepticism didn't mean mm. what it came to mean when it actually meant you know this mad shit of leaving the European Union. I mean, I remember I remember like not even that long ago having a conversation with someone from The Spectator and we were talking about UKIP, with whom I'd v- vaguely heard at the time. Maybe it's, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And um, and then we're going, and of course, UKIP want to leave the European Union. And I was like, what, really? Actually leave it? You know, it's like the maddest thing I'd ever heard of. So, I mean, you know, even, so being a, uh, being a Eurosceptic Tory, yes, meant something quite different in the 90s. And what does he, what does he think should happen now? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, he, I mean he's, uh, he was pro-Remain, hmm. uh, and um, it's about as much as I sort of really know. I think he thinks there is a way of making Brexit work 
but it would still be less appealing than not doing it. I think is probably his position. Um, yeah, but I haven't I haven't got the exact nuts and bolts on it. I'm sure he's written about it. Does he post comments under your pieces? No, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Uh, he, he claims to read them, but I'm never quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't read his. It's fine. <laughs> so, um, finally, where do you think Brexit is is going to end up? Because we're constantly talking about the options. The ground keeps shifting. Um, what is your feeling of where we're going to be in a year's time? I think there's a decent chance we're in almost exactly the same place in a year's time that we're in we're in some kind of inconclusive transitional kind of period. I don't see much prospect at least any point in the near future of there being no Brexit and I'm not even sure I think that would you know I'm kind of I'm instinctively a a small c conservative in that I don't like massive change because I think it's dangerous and stupid. I'm not saying I'm against change, mm. I don't like massive upheaval sudden change. And we've managed to get ourselves into this bonkers situation where cancelling Brexit would be massive upheaval and sudden change, and I think would be bad for the fabric of the nation. So I don't think that's plausible. By the same token, I simply, the more I read about it, the more I learn about it, the more people I speak to, I do not see a way that Brexit can happen in the way that Brexiters want it to happen. So, uh, and as we can't do either of those things, I think we're going to have to do is something in the middle, which is stall. I think what some leavers don't understand is that it would actually be psychologically much better for many Remainers if they could see uh, a way that it could work. And yeah. that the reason, it's a kind of like they've got it the wrong way around. It's just like you want Brexit to fail because you don't like the idea of Brexit. Yeah. Whereas actually, of course, a lot of the opposition and the fact that I think you have seen a sort of growing anger as it moves further down the, the road, the road of shit, is that the reason why people oppose it is because it's not going right. to work. There's always this assumption that you start with this ideological yeah. position and look for reasons to back it up. It's I, like, feel, I, I feel it was the opposite. Was it? I mean, for ages, I feel like at least half of Remainers wanted to get on board for about a year after the vote. And in fact, they showed signs in polling mm-hmm. doing it. But I just think there's only so long that no one can tell you exactly how it is going to work rather yeah. than yeah. just state over and over that it will eventually work. It's that like, you have to give up faith after a while to say, well, no. It's like, I'm not just, I'm not just pretending to think this is mad and stupid. I'm not, it's not, it's, 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 it's not a pose so, so as to, you know, so as to sort of like succeed in my evil plans. I literally don't understand how you think you can do this thing. But it's like leaving is, is the leaving is largely sort of faith-based. The remain side is more fact-based. And so the faith-based side just thinks, well, there must be an equal and opposite faith yeah. in remaining, that it must be this enormous mm. culture. Of, and there is a cultural dimension to it. But actually, I think a lot of it is sort of, is sort of pragmatic and just this recoil from going like, this is going to be awful for, yeah. you know, for whatever, and trade to the, to the Irish border. And that there's a, there's a part of it that would, that would love to... Well, I mean, be able to sort of relax a little and go, oh, well, I didn't like it, but it looks like it's going to be pretty successful and not well, break I mean, the country. So this, I mean, this is the, this is the, this is the, un, the, sort of the unoccupied political ground is of the great Remainer who comes in and says, you know what, I wasn't up for this, but we're going to make it work and here's how. Now, that's what like Theresa May has done the first two bits of that. <laughs> you know, like, I wasn't mm-hmm. a fan of this, but we're going to make it work and here's actually, I don't know how. Um, and... Uh, and if that was ground that could be occupied politically, someone would bloody be in it. Mm. You know, no one is. It, 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 it's just not there. Finally, I'm now going to read something out. As you might know, the backroom team behind Romaniacs is also producing a new podcast called Anger Management with Nick Clegg, in which the ex-Deputy Prime Minister talks to people from across the political spectrum about the war of rage against reason. You can find it on Apple Podcasts now. 
He's had a pretty diverse series of guests, from the charming Gary Lineker to the even more charming Nigel Farage. I don't believe that the person that wrote the script actually believes what they just said. <laughs> and on this week's show, uh, Nick is talking to Harriet Harman, the longest-serving female MP in the House, about how anger in politics isn't necessarily a bad thing. Here's what happened when he asked her what happens if Labour goes through with supporting a Tory hard Brexit. I think the first point is to worry about people's standard of living and prosperity and to try and do the very best we can to but by not that, have I... economic disaster. I think, of course, there are important political considerations, but the first consideration must be to stop the economy going over the edge mm. of a cliff and trying to get the very best deal. And, of course, we don't know what the deal is. It's going to be less good than what we've got at the moment. I mean, that's why but if I that's was for Remain. But if that's your benchmark, then surely it's a sort of no-brainer. You can't possibly vote for any version of the government's increasingly confusing versions of Brexit because they're all economically damaging. So, I mean... Well, let's see what they come up with. You know, we've got to but you don't, see you, what... But you I don't, don't, you don't believe you, yeah, but, that they're going to no, come up with anything that's... Well, it depends what, of course, our European partners are prepared to let us do. But, I mean, it's just... You know, it's very, very worrying. And I think in all my time I've been in Parliament, I can't remember, I think it was actually Kenneth Clark who said no government has got a mandate to make its people worse off, mm. full stop. And I think that that is, you know, mm. and the irrevocability of it. It's not like a general election mm. where you can make a horrendous error no, I, and then sort it out next time. That's the new episode of Anger Management with Nick Clegg featuring Harriet Harman. The end of the show is coming up, which means it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule, where we stash away something for the future that we're going to miss if we leave the EU or something that we'll need if we're out. Hugo, as our special guest, it's your call. What would you like to keep? I know this is going to sound strange, but I am going to miss Eurosceptics, OK? <laughs> and the reason why I'm going to miss them <laughs> is because I like the way that at the moment and for the past, they have a focus for their mad anger. Right, I've lived mm. my entire life. When someone goes, "That's all the EU's fault," I've thought to myself, "Fine, you're compartmentalised now as a mad person, and that's okay, and I can navigate that, and I know how to work it." I don't know what these people are going to blame for everything once we're out the out the EU. It could be anything. It could be it could be God. It could be the Jews. You know, it could be anything. And so I quite like the certainty of knowing that they're just blaming Brussels. Well, because in a way, yeah, because it's almost like punching up. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, Brussels, if it's just sort of, yeah, immigrants. Yeah, I think exactly. it's going to be immigrants. It's going to be immigrants, yeah. isn't it? It's I mean, always... It could be me, that's fine. You know, I can cope with that. But it's just, just like, like Hugo skeptics. Yeah, it's Hugo, you know, it's like, why is it raining? It's bloody Hugo, Hugo. bloody Hugo again. Uh, you know, I can, I can deal with that. But I'm worried it might be something worse. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Ian Dunt and to our special guest, Hugo Rifkind. What are you up to next? We, uh, I'm going to go home and write my TV review. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> Is that all you want? <laughs> I don't know. I won't read it because it's behind a paywall. <laughs> Thank you, Hugo. For our European language clip, here's a bit of Portuguese. It's actually Brazilian Portuguese. Um, never mind. From listener Beth McLaughlin. Never mind. <laughs> Don't forget that Ian and Naomi will see you at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival on Sunday and we'll see you next week. Now get your glow sticks out for our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a roll call of our Patreon backers. 
Hello and thanks from me to Kevin Conroy, Diliza Lamb, Marjon Winchester, Edward Bloomfield and Mike Hughes. And thanks from me to Ruth Abrahams, Michaelaine Williams, Khalid Najim, Sam Potts and True Rue. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Lidsky with Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.